True or false, income never goes out of style. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Hagens, co-founder of AltsDB. Jimmy loves to quote me on that, by the way, and I kind of want to make it my trademark quote. And it's true because what investor or portfolio manager doesn't love a consistent, high-yielding, high-income portfolio? On February 8th, my fellow co-founder at AltsDB, Jimmy Atkinson, hosted Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO of InfraCap, for a live one-hour educational webinar. You guys already know Jay from the podcast. He's the man. This webinar detailed income investing strategies for volatile markets, and this podcast is an audio version of the webinar. If you hate income, go ahead and skip this episode. Otherwise, I think you're going to love it. Oh, and, and one other thing. Jimmy and I, we've been making a push with our social media and our newest platform is LinkedIn. It hasn't been as bad as I thought. It actually, it's been kind of fun. You guys share a lot of really interesting stuff there. There's some good conversations. So if we're not connected already, please look me up, Andy Hagens on LinkedIn and make sure to connect with AltsDB on LinkedIn as well. Thanks everyone and have a great day. Enjoy the webinar. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to today's AltDB webinar, Income Investing Strategies for Volatile Markets. Today's webinar is sponsored by Infrastructure Capital Advisors, also known as InfraCap. And our presenter today is Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO at InfraCap. And uh, with that, Jay, uh, great to see you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, Jimmy, for having me on. I'm uh, excited about it. Doing really well. Very good. Well, we're we're talking income investing strategies today. Uh, before we get your presentation teed up, Jay, uh, I just had a couple questions that I wanted to ask you about income investing, income strategies. Firstly, really basically, why is income investing so popular? Uh, we hear from a lot of our audience of high net worth and ultra high net worth investors and their advisors, there seems to be just a huge focus from our AltsDB audience on building a high yielding, high income portfolio. What's the appeal, Jay? Well, we think it's really the core to a, um, a high quality portfolio. And particularly, of course, for people who are either nearing retirement or in retirement, so as an example, um, I took over and started advising my uh, one of my best friends from high school, and he had just been kind of fired from his prior advisor. And I said, "Okay, well, what's your yield?" And he said, "Well, what's it, what? What do you mean by yield?" So he had the fees were so high. Of course, I wasn't charging him fees, and his the funds he was in didn't have substantial yield. So I said, "Okay, well, let's build a diversified portfolio." four to five percent you know portfolio yield about half bonds half equities and so we did that and then he got an inheritance for another uh, couple million dollars and he said okay great now i'm going to retire but if we hadn't really built that portfolio because he knew then he had enough income to cover his expenses so he didn't need to work so it's really i think um for more conservative investors it's really the only way to maintain sanity is to know, you know, like today, the market's pretty weak, to know that, okay, well, that sort of seems bad, it feels bad, but it's kind of good to the extent that I have any money to invest, because I do, am getting all this yield, 
that can reinvest at lower prices, higher yields. And even if I'm pulling the money out of my portfolio to support my expenses, you can be confident that the stock prices are way more volatile than the income stream. And usually the income stream still grows, which it really has through this downturn. So that's what we do with our own portfolios. We're the biggest holders of all our ETFs. And we think those strategies make the most sense, not just for older investors, but for everyone, at least to some degree. Uh, great. Well, InfraCap uh, is one of the one of the leaders in the ETF industry. So want to get your thoughts on the economy right now, Jay. Uh, obviously, 2022 was a tough year for investors, uh, both in terms of the bond market and the publicly traded stock market. Uh, it's a pretty good year for, for alts in comparison, actually. But coming off a year like that, what might be in store for income investors in the year ahead following these twin bear markets? Well, we correctly were negative about the market in 2022, particularly on tech stocks and um, on um, risky trades like um, like cryptocurrency, meme stocks, etc. But the rationale, the rationale is more important than our opinion. So the rationale was very, very simple. The Fed was tightening; they were reducing the money supply dramatically. In fact. I just talked about this on Fox Business this morning. They actually reduced the money supply by almost 20% last year, mostly through open market operations, not raising rates. So that's why we were all feeling pain is that the Fed was really sucking capital out of the capital markets, driving both bond and stock prices down. So conversely, so we were negative. We called it adult swim, and we thought the Dow would outperform the S&P. Um, we thought actually the Dow might be a little bit up. It was actually a little bit down. So we we're off by slightly, but clearly the call on the Qs, crypto, et cetera, were exactly correct. Again, because of this liquidity reduction of taking money out of the economy, that's what, when you reduce the money supply, you're basically sucking money out of the capital markets. This year, we actually have a top decile target on the S&P of 4,500. And there's also a simple reason for that. First of all, the bulk of the of the reduction in the money supply is behind us because the, the Fed did something called, um, and I surprisingly mentioned this on television this morning, which confused most people. They do something called reverse repo. They have 2.5 trillion reverse repo. That's how they suck the money out. And they're going to use that. It's normally zero. So they have that 2.5 trillion to offset the reduction in the balance sheet, which almost no one knows or has ever had anybody mention it to them or understands it. We, by the way, are available for questions anytime. Um, you can get us through our website at infracapfunds.com, but we can go through that. It's an absolutely critical point that no one understands. And when I see mean no one, I mean almost no one, except maybe the, obviously the Fed and the New York Fed, because they do it and a few other people. But so, most of the monetary tightenings behind us, we think the Fed will do exactly as they've said. They'll raise rates two more times. They're not going to cut. But, um, and this is important too, normally we'd have a pretty significant recession. Fed's raising rates, long ends going up, housing markets cooling off. But we have post-pandemic tailwinds, shortage of housing, shortage of autos, which normally crash. 
and a strong labor market, which you almost never have when the Fed's tightening rates. So we're the reason for our bullishness is the Fed's going to halt. And just think about it simply. Do you want to be long or short the market when the Fed says they're not, they're done hiking? And obviously you want to be long, unless the markets run up to like 5,000 or well above our target. So, um, but at the same time, we do not anticipate a major recession. So that's the prescription for a pretty strong market rally. Next year, eventually the Fed will cut short-term rates. We think long rates will end at 3%, which is very bullish for bonds. And pretty much that's what's been unfolding so far this year. The only caveat is just we come pretty far, pretty fast. And there's another simple rule of investing, which is be long stocks during earnings season and not so long or short or hedged after earnings season, because then the companies are no longer controlling the dialogue. It's more hedge funds, short thesis, macro data, um, open mark, open mouth operations. So the Fed talking the market down and being hawkish about inflation. And just one last point. Well, well, I can get to it in more depth in our presentation, but we believe the Fed's completely out to lunch on inflation. They're not following the right indicators. So they can be ignored, but I wouldn't assume they're going to get religion. So they're going to raise two more times and stay um, you know, flat for the rest of the year. We're okay with that. It's not the right policy, but we're okay with that. We'll get into that in our slideshow. Yeah, wow. The Fed is completely out to lunch on inflation. Uh, you heard it here first, I guess. Uh, well, I've heard it before. <laughs> you're, you're, we, we've heard similar types of things, but it's always, it's always powerful to hear that again. That uh, the, 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 the administration that's supposed to be responsible for, for tamping down inflation may not know what they're doing. Um, well, I, I want to learn more about that, Jay. So with that, uh, I'll let you share your screen and take it away with your presentation. And, and while Jay gets his screen share going. Again, just for those who may have joined us in the last few minutes, in case you missed my earlier announcement, uh, we are going to save some time at the end for live Q&A. So if you have any questions for Jay, please do use the Q&A tool in your Zoom toolbar. Uh, Jay, feel free to share your screen um, at this time and, and dive into your presentation. So <clears throat> we are income investors. And we think it's a great strategy for markets like these. Um, where there is a lot of uncertainty. We're bullish, but that doesn't mean everyone is. And as I mentioned, when the news flow changes from the companies to macro, political, and other short-type um, thesis, you know, it can be very volatile. When you're an income investor, that gives you uh, tremendous <clears throat> um, abilities to continue paying your expenses, reinvest at lower rates, and also sleep at night that you own great companies that have strong dividends. Okay, so this outline of what we're talking about, and briefly talk about our firm, economic outlook, we covered a little bit, but we'll go through that. Benefits of a balanced portfolio, and then three, four ways to generate income in some asset classes that we um, prefer. Who we are, my background, is that I'm from um, Northern California originally, went to um, University of California, Davis, have a degree in managerial economics, studied under um, monetary economists. By the way, we don't believe that you should be either a monetarist or Keynesian. Keynesians associated with Democrats and liberals. 
monetarism with more conservative, although conservatives have kind of abandoned that. You should be agnostic because we're at least in in business trying just trying to make money. But so we but we do have a strong understanding of of um, the money supply. That's why we focus on that reverse repo um, comment. And then in terms of the focus of our firm, you know, I used to be, um, so my career, I, I um, have a managerial economics degree, CPA from Ernst & Young, San Francisco, MBA from Wharton in finance with distinction in Philadelphia, and I've been in New York for the last um, 34 years. <clears throat> um, half of that time about working as an investment banker doing utilities and MLPs. The rest of the time as an investor, um, ran a billion dollar portfolio for Steve Cohen at SAC Capital, um, formed my own firm, founded an MLP, took it public, that's traded on New York Stock Exchange and Geo Energy Partners. Uh, that was in 2011. 2012, we launched our hedge fund. 2014, we launched AMZA, which is our uh, pipeline MLP fund. It's an ETF. 2017, we launched PFFR. That's a preferred stock, weak preferred stock ETF. 2018, PFFA is our flagship preferred stock fund, active preferred stock fund. And last year, we launched ICAP, which is our large cap dividend fund. So we talked a little bit about the economic outlook. <clears throat> so I'll just add a few details of that and move through this pretty quickly. The... Um, we believe not only is inflation decelerating, that we're actually in a deflation. We maintain our own um, index of real-time CPI, so CPI-R, and that has turned negative over the last four months, strongly negative at an annual rate of over 4%. And by the way, CPI-R, even though we developed that index, is not very exotic, it's simply calculating CPI as it was calculated prior to 1982. So instead of using the BLS's arcane estimate of owner's equivalent rent and delay, highly delayed estimate and rents, we use um, housing prices. And housing prices predict the shelter component of CPI with 70% correlation, but 12 months in advance. So CPI-R really moves forward and makes CPI a relevant indicator. And so um, based on that and the fact that if you really look at what causes inflation, and this is where the Fed is really off track, particularly high inflation is caused by two factors, loose monetary policy, which leads to inflation in the housing sector. And by the way, this is what happened in the 70s. Um, in the 70s, you had similar inflation in shelter and housing that we have now, double digits. And then energy price shocks and commodity shocks, you had two of them in the 70s, 150% in 74, 200% 79. So almost unimaginably large. We had 70% though last uh, year ago quarter. So... <clears throat> Those are the two key drivers, not the labor market. The Fed follows something called the Phillips curve. That's labor economists believe that's what causes inflation. 
It can cause low inflation or an acceleration from low to medium inflation, in our opinion. The labor market, except for the pandemic, is highly stable, whereas the goods market, particularly when you have ultra-loose Fed policy, monetary base up 70% in 20 and 21, down 20 last year. When you have super volatile monetary policy, you get volatile housing prices, um, asset prices. And then, of course, it's not the Fed's fault, but you had a 70% energy shock. And what they don't appreciate fully, even though they their staff produced a paper that validates it, is there's a 5% bleed through of energy price shocks to core. So both of those factors, housing's now negative, um, energy prices are negative, particularly, nobody focuses on it, but natural gas prices are down 75% from their highs and 25% from the beginning of 22. And that's half of energy because natural gas prices electricity, which a lot of people don't appreciate. So we have these massive deflationary forces. And when goods prices, I'm, when I say goods, I include shelter and housing. When good prices are very volatile, what the Fed doesn't take into account is when they're rising, that puts tremendous pressure on nominal wages because workers need to maintain their standard of living if they're in Phoenix and rent goes up 22% and they're making minimum wage, they need to get a raise. But conversely, so that's what happens on the way up. And we saw that wages rose, but they trailed inflation. And now inflation's plummeting, which means real wages are rising, which means the demand for nominal wages is going to slacken. But the Fed completely ignores these dynamics. So they don't need to continue raising rates, they will. We don't think that's going to damage the economy. We'll have, I think we have a couple slides that'll talk about that. So we do have a 4,500 target on the S&P, which is looking like a good target considering we started at 3,800. And we have a rationale for that 18 and a half times 2024 earnings estimates. So um, that gets you to the 4,500. And the 18 and a half, we didn't just make it up. We're projecting the 10 year goes to 3%. And if you do a fair value of the S&P with a 10-year at 3%, it gets you to an 18 and a half multiple. So you should never quote multiples without quoting the associated treasury. Uh, we do think the Fed is going to be an issue. So we're not really saying in today's markets or validates that view that you should just go all in and buy the riskiest stocks right now, which you know should outperform in that market. You know, in other words, NASDAQ stocks, uh, even Bitcoin. We're not suggesting that right now because we haven't resolved this bad Fed policy. So we think we'll range, we're range bound. I think 4,200 is a big barrier. Having said that, if you look at our 4,500 target, I think the risk is to the upside, not the downside. The market is coming around to our view that inflation is rapidly declining, that the Fed is incompetent and wrong about inflation. And that also our view that the um, labor market is very resilient because we have a shortage of housing, autos, and those are normally the sectors that crash. So the Fed is right in one way, which is that if the in a normal cycle, the Fed tightens, housing rolls over, and then you do get unemployment. The unemployment, which you know does have a downward effect on wages. But the key factor is the tightening and the reduction in housing prices. 
And the unemployment is just a byproduct and not that critical to inflation. But so we don't think we're going to have a major recession. And that's really going to set us up, we think, for a pretty big rally as the Fed overhang. We do believe in follow the Fed as a prescription. That's why we're negative last year. But like I said, if the Fed's going to halt, then that's going to be a big bullish sign. Um, and in terms of, we'll, we'll talk about stocks later. It's on that slide. I'll skip it. And so, I, Jay, Jay, I did want to interrupt with a question that we got okay. a few minutes ago because you told me to interrupt you. If we yeah, have that's great. So, I appreciate it, Jimmy. Yeah, we, we, we've got one in here uh, that, that asks, um, I'm wondering, does Jay think inflation is falling significantly this year? And if so, how fast is it falling? Can you characterize the, how, how quickly we're seeing disinflation or, or deflation? We know that's a great question because within that question, I can highlight that there is a risk. So our real-time index is declining at a 4% annual rate, which is pretty large, that deflation, which the Fed fears. But there is a 12-month lag and housing didn't roll over till really July of last year. So what's gonna happen is that inflation is going to be appear to be very sticky because um, every time it gets reported, this lagged indicator of shelter doesn't sound like a big deal. So it's just shelter. Well, there right now, the estimate from the BLS is 0.8% per month. So we have to multiply, you know, we have to annualize that. So it annualizes right around 10%. So every time we get CPI, they're going to say shelters 10 <laughs> positive annualized where we're going to be saying, because we know what Kate Schiller was last month is negative 0.5 or 6% annualized. So there's going to be a gigantic annualized 16% difference, <laughs> or if you, you can divide that by 12, <laughs> um, between our estimate, which is really the correct estimate or the, the least the fundamental estimate and the BLS. So that's why we're not super bold up about the market in the first six months is you're going to get these pretty high prints on CPI unless they are up offset by very volatile reductions, which they have been so far. So we could get a hot print on CPI. So that's the bad news. And keep in mind that CPI is 42, core is 42% um, shelter and um, headlines 33 but then there is an, a silver lining to this, which is PCE, which the Fed follows, follows is only 16% housing. So that effect of the BLS massively overestimating CPI is attenuated. So we're actually forecasting that even by June of this year, <clears throat> PCE core will go below three. And that's why we're confident that the Fed will pause in, um, in you know, when they do the, the um, um, May increase, March, yeah, March and May, there's two more increases left because PCE will be dropping even though CPI might still print a little bit hot. At some point, the BLS number will roll over and attenuate and go down to where we're at. And so it's gonna be this odd situation where we really have deflation, you know, both from energy and the housing market, which is going to pressure wages, not pressure them, but keep them moderate because their real wages are rising. But yet the reported numbers could seem like they're hot. Hmm. So 
that's kind of the risk in the market, but that should roll over in the second half where you have a full year of moderating housing and um, CPI and, and PCE should track that and really start, you know, going towards the Fed's 2% target. So it's very, it's a little bit complicated, but it's important to appreciate so that people don't get too bold up and aren't like shocked if we have a hot CPI print. We're not going to be changing our numbers because the hot portion is going to be related to shelter. Yeah, that's that's good to keep in mind that uh, the the estimates that that uh, that the Fed uses uh, have a built-in lag to them that they don't properly account for, according to you, Jay. So so good to keep that in mind. Good insights. I'll let you uh, resume your presentation. Okay. So and I, any more interruptions are welcomed because sure. I think it's better to have a dialogue. And I've touched on this already, but we think that we'll hit 3% on the 10-year, and that's really three to three and a quarter is what we're saying, but that's driven by two major factors. The first is that what we just already described, we have a deflation going on. That's important. We don't have it on this slide, but we actually do. Um, 52 trillion of global pension assets. And you know, we, we, you throw around numbers, oh, 52 trillion, whatever. <clears throat> um, but you know, 32 trillion of that is in the United States. That's 150% of GDP. And if you track back, like when I started on Wall Street and Morgan Stanley, that number was probably one trillion. So what gave rise to that was the aging population of the world, at least the developed world, particularly in the United States. And so as um, as the population ages, there needs to be more and more money put into pension plans. And also surprisingly, most people don't appreciate this because you only hear about the bad ones. But almost every pension plan in the United States, public pension plan in the United States, has uh, passed reform legislation over the last 10 years that um, moves part of it to 401ks, but also funds the gap. So if you look at New York State, quite well funded, about 90% funded. Most states are close to being fully funded. It's only Illinois, New Jersey, a few outliers. So we have these well-funded pension plans Many of them, like CalPERS, is four, five hundred billion. That are um, potential buyers of bonds if they sell off, because if they have a seven percent bogey um, for total return, and the ten years at three fifty four, they're going to reallocate the bonds. They're only twenty eight percent allocated to bonds. So we think there's a huge global demand for bonds. And then one final bullet point on bonds is that most U.S. investors don't appreciate this is a global capital market. When I look on the screen, my Bloomberg screen for the world bond market, they're almost always trading exactly the same way. Almost every global bond is up a point, down a point. And if you look at it, the U.S. 10-year is very attractive relative to the rest of the world. The most extreme example is we're about 60 basis points above Canada which is really shocking. There's Canada's not that different than the United States. Canadian, I know working for CIBC, Canadians don't necessarily like to hear that, but similar capital markets. Uh, most of the European economies are 100, 150 basis points below the US. So US bonds are very attractive on a global basis. And, and bond market have been rallying pretty close to our, to, or down towards our target. This employment report kind of set that back 
we don't think people should overreact to the employment latest report, employment report. Because keep in mind, everybody said, oh my God, we added 500,000 jobs. But it's important to note that we actually lost 2.5 million because that's the normal cycle after Christmas <laughs> is that you have a lot of layoffs. And then the Commerce Department goes in and estimates, oh, well, normally you lose 300, 3 million jobs. So we actually added 500,000. I'm not saying that the labor market's not strong, but I wouldn't overreact to this seasonal adjustment. There was also some changes in the way they estimate it. So they can be both the seasonal um, factors can be wrong and then their first estimate can be wrong. So we think it's strong, but not like overheating, exploding, like 500,000 jobs would indicate. And this is just a graph of our index CPI-R. The reason actually we published the index is if you go to and look in the uh, 2020 year, you can see that's really started diverging from CPI in, in mid 2020, and then ran up at this pretty rapid rate. Well, if you annual, annualize these rates, they hit 10%. So in October of 20, it hit 10%. So it's really the smoking gun, because I'm not being pejorative with regard to the Fed, I'm just looking at the facts. And the smoking gun of Fed incompetence is that they were um, buying 120 billion of securities, keeping rates at zero, when a reasonable index of real-time inflation that is not a secret, because it was just simply calculating like it was by the uh, BLS before, um, to 1982, was signaling double-digit inflation, their targets too. So it's just massive objective incompetence. But the other point now is you can see the deflation starting, like the index is actually going down, and they're telling us that they're worried about inflation because of the labor market, but they ignore the fact that services, non-shelter services, is only about 25% of CPI, and of that, about 10 is transportation, which is driven more by energy prices than <clears throat> wages. So even though the economy is 70% services, <clears throat> that's the economy, that's not inflation. Inflation is primarily driven by the good sector, <clears throat> and a lot of things that are called services aren't even driven by wages, like insurance services are not, the key to that is not wages, it's actually losses on um, insurance. So we think the Fed is massively off base, but therein lies the opportunity because um, now we're at the towards the end of the tightening cycle. And so the Fed is going to, when, when the CPI and um, PC core actually go you know, close to three, which should be their target, but isn't, they're gonna at least halt and wait to see how far, far it does go down. So this is really key to our view is we're more bullish about inflation than most um, market participants, but definitely the Fed. And we think the reason the markets rallied is they're starting, not that they're all subscribed to CPI-R, but there's most reasonable people can tell that we're in either rapid disinflation or deflation. And this is a graph of housings, uh, total houses for sale, not just new, but existing. And you can see here that if we had this chart up and we were given the presentation, 
in 2007, we, we would be um, highly concerned because <laughs> we have 4.5 million homes for sale. Um, the average is 2.5. We build about 1.5. So we basically had three years inventory. But now we have the polar opposite situation where, and if you look on a cyclical basis, we're close to the cyclical bottom for inventory of houses. <clears throat> but yet the price is coming down because of mortgage rates. What's bullish about this is it's unlikely we have mass layoffs in the construction industry, because keep in mind, that's pretty much a zero one type industry. You don't keep, my father was a home builder, you don't keep all of your construction workers around when you're not building apartment complexes or whatever building you're building. So um, this is unlikely to be a source for mass unemployment. <clears throat> and um, it's an important point I made it to this morning <clears throat> is that tech unemployment is first of all, tech is a very small component of total employment. Secondly, I know from growing up in Silicon Valley that tech workers normally do not remain laid off for long periods of time. They're highly educated and they can work remotely. They can move from the new economy to the old economy because even companies like Honeywell need programmers and software engineers and even um, managers of tech. So we don't think that's significant, but if you had mass layoffs of lower skilled workers in the Midwest, which is a less robust job market, that can be a problem because then you have the downward spiral unemployment, less spending leads to, um, you know, declining demand for goods and, and bad GPP. And then I talked about the monetary base, huge run up coming down. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly so we can get to the other rest of the presentation. And I'm going to try to wrap up in five or 10 minutes. But here's actually a chart of global bond yields. And you can see how low Germany is. France and Portugal, the only um, OECD country higher in the United States is Italy. And it's only, um, this This is at end of the quarter, so it's higher than normal, or the rates are now. But the gap is really what we're looking at. So Italy was only about 30 basis points higher than the United States. And it has risk, of course, of, of, um, of um, being kicked out of the EU if they're bond, if they can't get their um, fiscal situation in order. I don't think anybody believes that, but there is a risk. So very attractive on a global basis, Canada well below the United States. <clears throat> now we're into more of the discussion of um, how do you implement a balanced portfolio? <clears throat> so there's really obviously two major asset classes. You have fixed income. So this is a slide of the fixed in income alternatives. <clears throat> and it's arranged by correlation to um, treasuries, the highest to lowest, and then really correlation to the stock market, market um, sort of highest or lowest to highest. <clears throat> so obviously treasuries have a one-to-one -one correlation, um, have a decent yields now, municipal bonds a little bit below that, uh, same amount of interest rate risk or correlation, well, half the interest rate risk of a government bond um, corporate bonds are starting to look attractive at 5.4%. We're going to talk a lot about preferreds. This is the average preferred stock is yielding six. But if you look to, um, rather than cap weighting the preferred index and look to 
other sectors besides financials. Financials is 65% of the cap-weighted index. You can get significantly higher yields. One of our, uh, our REIT fund yields well over seven and our other fund yields nearly double digits because we're not just focused on the financials. So you can get attractive yields <clears throat> with about modest stock market risk. We usually use 50%, this says 45, so about half the risk of the stock. Your senior to come on better protection. High yield is, is attracted now 9%. This is showing a lower correlation stock market than preferreds, which I guess might be true because they're not listed like preferreds are. And when we talk about preferreds, we're talking about $25 listed preferreds. So you could buy easily buy individual securities on stock exchange, which is what we like. And then senior loans, we don't have any funds in high yield or senior loans, but attractive asset class, lower beta to the stock market, um, lower interest rate risk and decent yields, but not super attractive. So we recommend actually, if you're building a bond portfolio, you would have exposure to all these asset classes. <laughs> so a lot of people forget about preferreds, but when I built my, I don't manage a lot of individual portfolios, but when I helped my friend build his, we added preferred stock, we added high yield. He already had the Vanguard total bond fund. So we had some of these other things, but by adding uh, you know, five to 10% preferred, five to 10% high yield, you get much higher yields. So we suggest being in all these asset classes. We think they're all um, attractive, particularly after treasuries have run up so much and weren't attractive uh, at the beginning of last year. And then on the equity side, this is also arranged by correlation to um, government bonds with the highest correlation being the top. And then stock market's a little bit different than that, but generally the risk goes higher. So we have utilities, which we think are pretty overvalued. You can tell that by the yield. And I used to be a utility banker. So these companies are way more highly valued than when I was a banker doing utilities. REITs we think are goodbye, depressed last year, uh, too much pessimism about cap rates and the value of long-term real estate. Telecoms attractive, that's really um, AT&T, Verizon, those stocks have come off, so have good yields. MLPs, we really like a lot here. Uh, they're very, they become much better asset class, better capitalized. We'll talk about that more. High dividend yield stocks, we have ICAP, the trades in these 4.4 average. We Our fund, we use low leverage and some preferreds to get a higher yield than that. And the S&P is only yielding 1.7%. So pretty fully valued. It doesn't really get you to that kind of 4 to 5% nut that we're seeking. And then just in terms of building these portfolios, um, as I mentioned, we think even younger investors should have some fixed income component. If for no, no other reason to rebalance, if the stock market didn't work last year, but normally when the stock market goes way down, the bond market actually rallies. So you can reallocate, so you're able to buy at the bottom. So in this hypothetical portfolio, um, we're saying the yield of a 30-70, by the way, these yields are way higher than they used to be, um, would be 4.67. If you put in more fixed income, you can get to six. And then if you're 70% fixed income, so this would be a pretty conservative investor with real big income needs, um, 7%. So we think there should be a component of fixed income and, um, and equity income, because you're never going to get to um, these yields unless you have pretty good income, not just 1.7, but 
better income coming from your equity portfolio. And now we're just going to cover some of these asset classes pretty quickly. I'm just going to check the time. So go through these in the next um, three to five minutes. So high dividend, large cap stocks. We like large cap stocks are lower risk in general than small cap stocks, have lower betas, better credit ratings, uh, been around longer. All the times they're dividend aristos aristocrats. And, and you can see over the long run, um, since 1991, you've actually got nearly the same return as the NASDAQ, but which way lower volatility, <clears throat> better sharp ratio, and of course, better income, which is critical, particularly for conservative investors, conservative value investors like us. <clears throat> and then just going to talk a little bit about the fund we have in the sector. So it's been um, these stocks do have lower betas, as I mentioned, so they easily outperformed the S&P last year. They're also um, doing well this year. So they're pretty resilient in a lot of markets. Uh, we do think the market is you know, probably range bound. So if you're going to add stocks, um, it's probably good to do more these more uh, conservative stocks. It's, uh, the fund is well diversified by sector. Um, and also by company. So we have 80 companies, no companies significantly more than 3%. And then we do add a little bit of, of um, active style management and that we run low leverage about 20% and we buy preferred stock with that. And that's why you'll see the yield on ICAP is well above 7% versus the index we, we track is about four and a half. So we have a little bit of bias towards higher yielding stocks. We also have that preferred portfolio which has attractive yields, particularly now because preferreds are undervalued in our opinion and have come off, they're well below, trading well below par. Um, so we have, as I mentioned, diverse, diversified, well, good diversification. Um, we are constantly monitoring the portfolio, looking at the valuation. You can see the SEC yield is very high, 9.54%. Sometimes that's a little bit higher than our distribution yield, so it's well-covered dividend. And most of the dividends are going to be qualified dividends, so it has good tax characteristics. And then preferreds, we're strongly recommending, particularly for um, clients that don't have exposure to preferreds, to add them now. And the reason for that is pretty simple. They're callable at par. These are all, we're, we're recommending listed preferreds. So they're callable at par. So they're pretty attractive when they're trading around par, but they're super attractive when they're trading where they are now, which is our fund, our flagship fund PFFA is roughly trading at 21. That's indicative of the underlying preferreds. So you're getting $4 discount to the call price. So you have the potential for equity-like returns, which would be going from 21 to 25. So back to par, which normally happens when you get out of a major cycle it happened in 09, happened during the pandemic. We think it'll happen again. So you get at least that potential, but while you wait, you get um, good dividends. Uh, PFFA almost yields well over nine. And then you get enhanced safety, at least relative to common, not relative to bonds, but relative to common. Because a lot of times companies will shut down or almost virtually eliminate their common equity 
dividend and maintain their preferred dividends. And you might say, well, why do they do that? It's because they're trying to target most of the companies we invest in are investment grade bonds and double B preferreds. So they need to defend their investment grade credit and they'll do whatever it takes. And the last thing they wanna do, including selling assets, selling bonds, reducing dividends, common dividends. Last thing they wanna do is go into the rating agency and say, oh, we have a great credit, look at what we're forecasting. So you should maintain our investment grade rating. Oh, but by the way, we're not paying our, paying our cumulative dividends on our preferred stock. And so 90% of our fund is um, cumulative. So there's really no incentive to not pay it because you're going to owe it back anyway, unless you think you are going to go into bankruptcy. And of course, we pick credits that we think have a very, very low probability of going to bankruptcy. And if it seems like we made a mistake, we would sell them, hopefully at relatively high prices, because that is the disadvantage of preferreds is they don't do well in bankruptcy. So you want solid credits. You don't want to do distressed investing in preferreds. And the only thing um, that's really critical about preferreds is that the default 30 year default rate, these are listed preferreds again, $25 preferreds. The default rate is very similar to an investor grade bonds, about 0.33% over 30 years. That's a Moody's figure versus 0.1 for investor grade bonds. And high yield bonds are well over three. So you can get attractive yields with modest defaults. If you have active management, hopefully, de minimis uh, defaults even below this number, no guarantees, but that's why we're monitoring all the credits. So quite an attractive asset class should be added to most clients' portfolios. Even if you don't use our ETFs, you can pick individual stocks, you can find other ETFs. Um, but of course we do like our own ETF. We're also the largest holder of PFFA and have um, 600,000, our firm owns 600,000 shares. So we eat our own cooking. So I'm gonna wrap this up pretty quickly now. Um, <clears throat> it's not relevant right now. The other risk with preferreds that uh, argue for active management is if they do trade above par, you wanna sell them, but uh, index funds don't do that. So you can end up owning securities through the ETF that are trading above par, callable par, which is really arguably even a violation of fiduciary duty because you can lose money at any moment when it gets called. Um, not, I won't get into this a lot, but um, ETFs, we do use modest leverage in our ETF, but well below closed-in funds. And we also dynamically manage that, so we keep it capped well below um, 30%. And so that does help us enhance returns over time. <clears throat> this is a risk to preferred, you know, the key risk, interest rate risk. We manage that through having higher coupon securities, default risk I mentioned, and then call risk are three of the major risks. They also just have mark-to-market risk. And I've talked a little bit about PFFA, reasonable fees, attractive returns relative to other uh, funds. Uh, SEC yield is estimated 11.54. That's well above the distribution. So covered dividends. Performance has been superior to other ETFs since we launched it. REITs, uh, we have a preferred stock fund, PFFR, that invests in the preferred REITs. We don't have a REIT fund. We do think REITs are attractive, uh, even office REITs. Um, we do think that market will come back. Doesn't really matter if employees go in four days or five days, there's still a demand for office space. We have more office space 
and roughly the same number of employees because employees need more space because of COVID potential for COVID. That's just a demand. If you're going to come in the office, better have a nice office. So we're bullish on REITs, but I won't spend a lot of time on that. We just have a REIT preferred stock fund, which is a, REITs are good credits. They have low leverage. And then um, we're going to talk about master limited partnerships for just a couple minutes. The most important thing to know, because some of you on the webinar might have PTSD from holding MLPs in the past, but what happened is they were structured as growth stocks. So they had relatively high leverage, low dividend coverage, no retained earnings, no share repurchases. And the notion was they're going to issue equity to grow. Well, they got attacked by hedge funds and of course energy prices came way off. So that model blew up. So in response, all the large cap companies um, have now adjusted their dividends to be well covered, usually about two to one covered with free cash flow. So they're retaining earnings, which they're buying assets, growing earnings. So they're able to raise the dividend. They're buying back shares. So hedge funds aren't attacking them anymore. Their leverage is down. Some of them, EPD, one of the leaders, enterprise, is, a three is only three times levered, which is very modest for a pipeline company. So these companies have repaired themselves, but yet a lot of people are shunning them because of the fact that they hadn't performed well. They also shun them because then you get something called K1, which is partnership return. It's very awkward unless you have like a very expensive um, CPA to file it. Our fund is a corporation, so you don't get the K1s. Uh, you get capital gains treatment instead of recapture if you sell it. Um, we do think that energy prices are going to be relatively strong this year, 80 to 100. So that's a good support for MLPs. And we have fund risks. It's, it's correlated to the energy sector. been pretty volatile. We think the volatility has calmed down, but no guarantees on that side. And so with that, Jimmy, I would... Um, I'll turn it back to you, see if we have any questions, or maybe you can manufacture a few questions if you don't. Yeah, that, that's great, Jay. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to need to manufacture any. We've got plenty of questions from the audience. We've got eight minutes left until the top of the hour. Um, we might go a few minutes over, but we won't hold it against you if you have to bug out at uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, let's start with, uh, with Ian had a couple of questions for you. Jay, his first question is, what will the yield curve look like? And he didn't indicate over what time period, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on yield curve. Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the situation we described where the market is ahead of the Fed is why we have an inverted yield curve. And we think it probably will remain inverted for the next two years because we do have this Fed that likes to look in the rear view mirror to drive the bus. Fortunately, we don't think they're going to drive the bus off the cliff because of post-pandemic tailwinds. But so we think it'll be inverted for the next couple of years. Eventually the Fed will drop it probably back to its long-term equilibrium, which is probably about two and a half percent, slightly above their long-term target for inflation. And we do think the long bond, the 10 year and the 30 year will settle into this three to three and a quarter because of the retirement boom that we have. And also we're gonna have modest growth in the US, Europe, and China. Um, so that'll keep, should keep the lids on long-term rates. Good, uh, Ian's second question was, uh, what is your view on financials, the financial sector, financial stocks? You know, we, we like the financials. We think that people became too fearful of mass 
um, write-offs of loans. <clears throat> and so we particularly like regional banks um, that don't have exposure to um, being an investment banker like I used to be. Good boy, do I know. And downturns, you do not want to be an investment banker. And so um, Morgan Stanley has been pretty resilient because they have a gigantic wealth business. Goldman Sachs has underperformed. JP Morgan, Bank America to a lesser degree. Now, having said that, so we do think the yield curve is very positive for banks. Keep in mind, they don't really care about the 10-year. They borrow short-term and lend short-term. So it's really the spread between deposits and what they can charge uh, corporations mostly, but anything with floating rate. So their uh, net interest margins are exploding. We don't think credit's going to be a big problem. But if you do subscribe to our bullish thesis about the market, later this um, year, at some point, people will re realize the Fed's going to pause. And so you probably want to be in the riskier investment banks because you'll see more offerings. And there's actually a fair amount of fixed income offerings going on right now. So there's a little bit of improvement in investment banks. So, you know, you can figure out that rotation, but generally we like financials and think people have overestimated defaults because they're assuming there's going to be mass unemployment, which the data don't support, um, particularly on housing and autos. Uh, next question coming in asks, Jay, what do you believe are the best asset classes for a blended growth and income portfolio versus pure income. So maybe maybe this question was was thinking of that moderate uh, portfolio that you presented earlier. Now, I know you already mentioned four different asset classes that you like dividend stocks, the dividend aristocrats you mentioned as well uh, in that category, preferred stocks, REITs and MLPs. I don't know if you had any other commentary on, on, well, certainly on other asset classes is, like. That's really a great question because you know, you don't have to go into the ultra conservative, like a lot of the portfolios from that I have for like my IRA probably yields eight and a half percent. But yeah, you can take those asset classes and say, well, actually, I've got a younger investor that's willing to take more market risk because they have a longer term horizon, would actually argue for not really having any treasuries, um, maybe some muni bonds, depending on their tax situation, but having a bigger slug of high yield bonds and preferreds, because there you get closer to equity-like returns, like seven, eight, nine. And then, you know, a lower allocation to fixed income, like 30 is a reasonable number. And then on the equity income side, yeah, maybe you do have a pretty big tech allocation, um, but you could still have, instead of 5% MLPs, you could still have one or two, because we do think that there's good total return there, not just income. Um, REITs, we think, are not just an income investment right now, but really a return to normal um, cap rates for the underlying assets. So you could have some of that. That's a riskier asset class. But maybe right now, avoid utilities, um, avoid telecoms, because they're not that undervalued. So sort of take the same approach, but add a little bit of risk. And we have those parameters there, you know, risk being correlation to stock market or higher betas, and less correlation to the bond market. Because if you have a longer term horizon, you don't need to necessarily have you know, treasuries should not last year, but should actually go up when the bot, when the stock market's down. But if you're not as concerned about short-term volatility, you don't need the treasuries. You don't need the investment grade. You can have the lower credits, maybe some unis because of taxes. So you can take that slide and build a higher beta portfolio that's going to have better growth in the long run. Uh, next question is a, a bit technical, but hoping you can clarify this for this 
person, uh, can you explain the difference between the various yield metrics? Uh, for instance, the SEC yield versus the distribution yield versus any other yield metrics that you like to use? What, what are the technical distinctions between those different metrics? Well, so the SEC yield is an estimate that the SEC requires. And so that's beneficial because you can't <laughs> use your own judgment. And what it attempts to do is take the portfolio exactly as of the end of the month or quarter, and then look at what the income that should come from the portfolio based on their dividend yields, and then subtracts us off expenses like borrowing. It's not a hundred percent accurate. Like I've, you know, actually the distribution. So distribution yield is just simply what we're paying out to our investors. And so most advisors like to have an SEC yield that's either above or similar to the distribution yield because they don't want their clients to get what's called 19As or return of capital notices. Um, and they don't want their, you know, the NAV of what they hold to just slowly go down as they book all this income. So, you know, we structure our funds so they're close to being covered by cash. So that the SEC is an estimate of the cash, it's not perfect, like I said, Sometimes it looks a little bit high to me, but it's a good estimate. It's objective. And it'll allow you to eliminate certain funds. We're aware of many, many funds. We won't pick on anybody where they pay out seven or eight, but their SEC yield is two or three. So you're really just getting back your capital and they're calling it yield, which doesn't really do what you want to do, which is you should be able to take your income and spend it confidently, not assume all of your investors' investments are just going to decline you know, rateably with the amount that's not cash covered. Uh, regarding some of these income asset classes, preferred REITs, et cetera, are the publicly traded funds valued at a discount compared to private funds right now, broadly speaking? Yes. Yeah, so the, um, and not to pick on your, you know, the other, your other clients and funds that you focus on, but generally speaking, the um, stock market is far more volatile than the private market. And so there's no doubt, you know, B-Read being a, the sort of poster child, that the marks in the private market is, are much higher than the marks in the public market. Now, you could argue, oh, well, that's fraudulent because you're not properly marketing your, you know, your private portfolio. But I would also argue it's also just a market inefficiency. Like preferred stocks shouldn't be trading at 21 so, I mean, we don't have private funds, but it wouldn't, to me, it wouldn't be completely irrational to say, look, these preferreds are all great. They're all paying their dividends. They're all extremely well covered. So we're just going to mark them at 25. I don't care that these retail investors have dumped them and they're trading at 21. So it's unclear whose, you know, marks are better, but therein lies the opportunity. You can buy discounted securities, like you can buy portfolios of um, office REITs, retail REITs, these ones that have been really out of favor at discounts to what arguably could be sold today. Now the private market's a little bit slow now because it's hard to get financing, but where they arguably could be um, sold. So we think that right now, sometimes they're actually traded premium, so you have to be careful. But right now you're getting these assets that are like alternatives. In fact, have private funds that are, are alternatives in the public market, and you can access them through ETFs. Close-in funds, um, so our ETFs all are arbitraged by market makers. So they trade close to the public market value. But close-in funds will trade at premiums or discounts, so you have to look at that. 
makes it more complicated to own because you have to kind of play that. Whereas with our funds and all ETFs, you can be confident when you're buying and selling, you're trading at NAV, close to at least. So you don't have to manage as closely. Like I know some, even some preferred stock funds, one that we track as a competitor is trading at a slight premium. So you don't have to worry about that though. And you don't get kind of double hit on the downside. Like if you buy a slight premium, market crash, cracks, and then the premium goes to negative 10, you kind of have losses on top of losses. Whereas ETFs, it's going to track the public market valuation of the securities, even if the public you know, the public may be discounted, but at least you get what it's actually trading out of the market or close to it. Good. Well, we've got, uh, I think we have got uh, just one more question. We're a couple minutes over, uh, but we'll, we'll get you out of here quickly. Uh, last question is, why not buy one and two-year treasuries and 5% CDs if you're, if you're seeking yield? You, you can. What you're missing there is just the opportunity to get higher returns and buy these securities at a discount. But if that hits your bogey and you want to completely sleep at night, then that's a perfectly reasonable strategy. It's just for most investors, that's not enough. So they would like to get more. And keep in mind also that when you roll those securities, they could really well be lower. You know, if I'm right about the, you know, the short end coming down, you're going to be getting five. And then three years from now, you'd be getting two. Where if you buy preferreds, you, know, you can pick, and by the way, if you want to pick individual preferreds, you can um, look in our portfolio holdings, But and we're happy to help people do that. Uh, it's reasonable to buy our fund and some of the underlayers. But you can get 789, and you're, if you believe the company's good, then you're going to continue to get 789. So it's going to be both higher than what you can get in short-term treasuries, and then likely to be sustained, whereas I would argue, because of those charts I showed, that that's going to trend down over the next three or four years. And then you're going to be, that doesn't hit your nut. Then you're going to be running down your principal to pay your expenses, um, particularly in retirement. That's not that fun. <clears throat> so that's the trade-off is risk return, kind of obviously. Excellent. Uh, well, Jay, it's it's been a pleasure hosting this webinar with you today. Great insights. Uh, our audience of High net worth investors and advisors can head to infracapfunds.com to learn more and, and get in touch with you, I believe. Is that right? That's correct. And also, there's a question. Would you please share the deck in addition to the recording? And I think you folks are going to do that. And you can um, contact us you know, through our website, www.infracapfunds.com, and we can send you the deck um, if, you, uh, if you'd like to receive that. Perfect. Thank you, Jane. Yes, we will get this recording out by tomorrow, and we'll also have a link to the deck on our website. We'll email everybody who registered for this webinar with that information. So sit tight. We'll get that out to everybody uh, by tomorrow. Jay, and uh, thank Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. And everyone who attended, thank you for your participation and for attending today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jimmy. Great hosting. Bye. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.